Thanks. Well, it's good to be back up here. It's been actually a couple of years, I think, since I've here. I've gotten older, and you've all gotten better looking. That's kind of weird, but. Um, uh, my name is Brent, as uh, Pastor Eldon said, I uh, work with Family Life Canada. And I just want to welcome you here. If you're, if you're new here, you're visiting, we want to welcome you. We want to welcome those that are online as well who are listening. And uh, I'm actually going to be here for the next four weeks. So starting the series called Love and War. Because we're all involved in relationships. And so if you're human, you're involved in some sort of a relationship. We don't expect those relationships to turn sour when we enter into a new relationship. This just isn't a romantic relationship, work relationship, wherever you are. Um, we expect to have peaceful relationships, but often they fall apart. So we're going to take a look at how we manage those conflicts, how we come out better the other side. And just a reminder, if you want to catch up on some of the other messages from other weeks, you can go online to cdac.ca slash messages, and you can find all those there. In your program that you have, you have some notes that if you want to if you want to follow along, you can follow along with the notes there. You can also do it on the YouVersion uh, Bible app. If you just click on more and then click on events and you'll see a little map with Circle Drive and it'll come up and you can follow there. I'm going to start with a question. The question is, have you ever screwed something up really bad because you misread the situation? It's probably not that bad. We should probably talk about making rash decisions uh, when you're mad, but you know, uh, me and Celeste, my wife, we often get billed as being relationship experts because we work with Family Life Canada. I often tell people my job is to help people get married, stay married, and enjoy being married. That's a lot of what we do. We help people work through uh, things like conflict, but I want to assure you that I'm a learner just like you. I haven't always been known to be, um, well, let's say I have been known to be oblivious. Uh, and so, I, I'm not always great in my own personal relationships. I often think of our um, story of when I got engaged to Celeste. And so I grew up in Vancouver, and I always had this dream of when I get engaged, whoever the girl is, I'm going to take her up to Grouse Mountain. I'm going to look down over the city. You have the lights. You have the ocean. You have everything. It's beautiful. And I'm not a romantic. So this, like, I put a lot of thought into this because I'm going to do this once. Um, I want to do it right. So I had this big plan. This is how I'm going to ask the woman of my dreams to marry me. One problem with that plan, though, is I was living in Regina at the time when I got engaged, so there's not much to look down over unless you, like, rent a helicopter or something, and I'm also cheap, so that didn't happen. Um, and so uh, I remember the day quite well. Celeste was living in Saskatoon. She came down to Regina to surprise me on Valentine's Day. I had gone up two weeks earlier, uh, and I was going to ask her to marry me, but my mentor said, well, where's your ring? And I said, well, I don't have a ring. She said she didn't want one. And, and uh, he's like, he looks at me, he's like, she wants a ring. Like, you cannot do this without a ring. I'm like, oh, no, she said she doesn't want one. And I said, no, she's just being nice. She wants a ring. And anyway, Celeste was sick that night, and I'm like, eh, it's probably not a good night anyway. So she came down to surprise me. Uh, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, somebody had spilled the beans, so I took her out for supper. At supper, we had a, a really nice romantic supper. And then I said, um, hey, why don't we go someplace else for dessert? Let's go for ice cream for dessert. And she looks at me and she says, okay, but no proposing. I'm like, hmm, it's an odd thing to say. Um, we're just out on a date. So we go, we had to go for ice cream. I said, this is fun, let's go for a drive. And she says, okay, but no proposing. 
At this point, I thought, well, you know what? She really doesn't know what she wants, and she probably wants me to be persistent. And, and really, it was selfish. I had geared myself up twice for this now, and I said, well, I'm just going to do it. So we go for a drive, and uh, so the light part was still bothering me, but I had figured it out. We actually just drove uh, a little bit past the airport, so I couldn't, I could see lights, just like a row of lights. I'm like, that's the closest I'm going to get to a uh, Vancouver view in Regina. So we, we parked, and uh, we're talking, and I remember I reached down, I pulled out the ring, and I said, Celeste, will you marry me? Pretty proud, shoulders back, and she said those seven words that every man dreams of hearing. Do I have to tell you today? <laughs> and I'm like, that was the one answer I actually wasn't prepared for. Uh, I'm like, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know. It was quite uncomfortable. I'd, her friend had come down. Her friend was dating my roommate. We went back. They had a little party planned for us. They're all smiles. We walk in the door, and all I could do is just go, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, not happening. So I'd misread the si- situation because there's a lot that had happened in Celeste's life growing up and uh, a lot of fear that she had around getting married. I'll finish that story uh, later on. But the point of today's message is that we misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world. We mess things up. And we're going to be looking uh, for the next three weeks at Matthew chapter 18. And we help many people work through conflict in our work. And even here in the church as part of being on the elders board when there's conflict. This is one chapter of the Bible that I just keep coming back to. It's got great advice on how do we... um, how do we handle all of this? So today we're going to look at why we fight. Uh, next week we're going to look at if we're going to fight, how do we do it properly? How do we have conflict? And if we're going to have conflict in week three, we're going to look at how do we forgive. And then week four we're going to talk about what does conflict look like when it hits home. But let's dig in and see why we fight. And now we're, whenever we're reading from the Bible, like I said, we're in the book of Matthew chapter 18, We always want to see where we are in the whole story of the Bible. So it's really dangerous to just take this one little section, two, three, four verses, whatever, and say, this is it. This is the whole story. Because the Bible's uh, a complete book that points us to Jesus and what he's doing in the world. So where we're on in the story, we're in the book of Matthew, which is one of the Gospels. It's the story of Jesus. Uh, And at this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus is on a road trip. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's willingly going knowing that he is going to die to pay the price for the the things that we've done we'll talk about that a little bit later but this is what he's doing he's going there and so if you're in your last days he's had these uh people these learners are called disciples that have been following him for a few years and he knows that he's going to go die so he's trying to impart as much knowledge as he can to them on this road trip and he's trying to explain the realities of God's kingdom here on earth. And really what he's doing, he's creating a new reality by recreating us as people. And that's the point he's been trying to get across in this book. He wants us to resemble him. And he wants us to live differently than the people that are around us, just the way our culture says we're supposed to, to live. So even though the disciples had spent the past couple years with Jesus, they still didn't understand him. So we're going to look, at this is in your notes, it'll be up on the screen as well. In verse um, 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom 
of heaven. And what they wanted to know was, okay, what do I get out of this relationship with Jesus? Jesus, if you're going to go and you're going to become the king, what point do I, I think, when I think about this, I think about our uh, members of parliament, our cabinet members, and, and on TV they're always like, oh, the prime minister is so great. What they're doing is they're trying to like remember me so that I get one of the better positions. That's exactly what the disciples are asking. Like, who, which one of us is going to be the greatest? So they're trying to figure out what they can get out of the relationship rather than what they can give or how they can make the world around them better. And I found the number one reason we, why we experience conflict because when we try to elevate ourselves above others, it leads to conflict. And I love how Jesus responds to this. He, he actually like surveys the crowd, he grabs a child, and he just takes this kid up and he puts this kid in front of everybody. And this is what he says. Well, in verse 2 it says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why did Jesus pick a child? When you look at children, when children are really young, they're vulnerable, they're trusting, they're humble, and there's this humility and dependence that he's trying to, to ingrain into the disciples. You need to be humble. You need to be dependent on others. It's not about how great you are. It's how you... Um, how you operate in these relationships. And then the next verse is uh, verse 5. He says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this is an interesting saying when Jesus says, this little one, and then he says, now these little ones. If anybody causes any one of these little ones. And so he's pointing to the other people that believe in him he's using a word play there and what he's talking about is the conflict that happens between those who are followers of jesus who are his disciples so he'd be talking about conflict here in a context like this in the church so if you're not a jesus follower stay tuned don't check out um, the principles here are going to apply to everyone and if you're new to church you're going to learn about how this community is actually supposed to work and the first point that we see from this passage is that conflict is serious. That's your first fill in the blank. Jesus uses some pretty graphic language here to talk about the seriousness of conflict within his people. So here's a picture of a millstone up here. He says it's better to tie that stone around your neck and drown yourself. So what Jesus is saying is if, if you're the reason that you cause somebody else uh, to turn away from God, it would be better for you to tie the stone around your neck and you know, walk off a pier, walk into the lake and drown yourself. Some translations use the word stumble instead of sin. And the picture here is that if someone's walking on this path and they're trying to follow God, they're trying to follow Jesus, and you're the one that gets in their, their way, it uses the term uh, stumbling block a lot. If you're the one that causes them to stop following God, that's very, very serious. And that word stumble is not just tripping, but falling down and not being able to get up. So Jesus is saying here that the way we treat others in this community is serious and it's important. But let's keep reading. It says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. 
For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay, Jesus is really up in the ante here. He's gone from talking about drowning yourself to self-mutilation. He's now talking about hell. And so, so if you're here and you're like checking out who this Jesus is, at this point you're like, whoa, okay, this is a little more serious than I thought. I always thought Jesus was the nice guy with the beard, always a child on his lap or like a lamb. I like, I like those pictures that, you know, were hanging around and when I was in Sunday school as a kid. And you're thinking, this is getting really weird. And it is getting weird, but trust me, Jesus is using strong language here, and he's using hyperbole for a reason. He wants us to understand that conflict within this church community is deadly serious. Which introduces us to our second principle, the second fill-in-the-blank, that conflict is inevitable. Jesus says, in what we just read there, it says it's necessary for temptations to come. In some words, um, the, the word's translated as inevitable. And what Jesus is saying here is that we all live in a world that's messed up. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict in our families, in our work, in our relationships. Even here in this church community, there are going to be conflicts. There is conflict because we're people, <laughs> And people create conflict. But notice the next line where he said, in verse 7 where he says, Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So even though conflict is inevitable, that doesn't mean that we're excused for being a part of it or even causing it. I think what Jesus is saying here is that we live in this messed up world. This kind of world where we can take a child, you take a newborn baby, you look how sweet and dependent and humble they are. They grow up. You look at your five-year-olds, your six-year-olds, they're still pretty humble and dependent. But by the time they get older, they end up causing the same pain and hurt that's been afflicted on them. He said we need to be like children, but the problem is, is we end up acting like children. And as we experience hurt in our own context, we, we tend to turn around and we, and we put that onto other people. I think of just a couple weeks ago, the lady here in Saskatoon who was jumped and beaten by four kids, 10 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old. How does a kid get there? I hate that they did that, but there's obviously something going on. They didn't just one day say, hey, it'd be really nice to beat somebody up. Obviously, something's going on where their own contacts is causing them to lash out into other people's lives. So even though conflict is inevitable... It's never excusable. Jesus is telling us we need to look seriously at our own character flaws. And we need to take whatever measure it takes to get those character flaws out of our life. And this is why Jesus says if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. Now Jesus doesn't want us to like, go to Canadian Tire by our machete and start like, chopping stuff off. Again, he's using just very strong language. But what he is saying is that he takes conflict very seriously, and we need to take it seriously as well. We need to do whatever it takes to address those character flaws that lead not only to our destruction, but also to the destruction of others around us. And this isn't the first time Jesus uses this language. 
a little earlier in, in, um, in Matthew, in chapter 5, he used the same language when he talks about lust. This is what he said. You have heard that it was said, you, should not, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand, that's not going to get rid of lust in your life. It'll hurt, but it's not going to get rid of it. Jesus says in verse 28 there, he says, that the sin actually occurs in our heart. We want to get rid of it. We actually need to rip our hearts out. And in Jewish literature, especially in like the book of Proverbs, when you look at when um, the metaphor of the eye was used, pretty self-explanatory. That's the way we see people. And here when he's talking about lust, he says, he's saying when we look at people and we stop looking at them as a person that's created in God's image, but we look at them to objectify them and just use them for our own personal pleasure. He says, that's serious. When they use the analogy of the hand, it's the way we treat people. So he's saying, like, you know, this is the way we treat people. And in the chapter that we're looking at, Matthew chapter 18, he adds the foot. So what he's saying, why he uses this language, is the way that we look at people will determine the way that we act, the way that we um, um, treat them. And then the foot is often the path that we're on. And the way we treat them is sets the path that we set in our life. You know, are we going to be people that treat people with respect? Are we going to be people that lift others up or tear them down? So that's why he starts talking about that. And he says it's so serious that it can land us in hell. And I just want to take a brief um, sidebar here on hell. I've talked to many people over the years in the church and out of the church that do not like the concept of hell. Actually, a lot of people say, I can never be a Christian because I don't like the idea of hell. I don't like the idea of hell either. But why does Jesus use this strong language? And, uh, and the question that's often asked is, if there's a loving God, why would he ever create a place for people to spend eternity away from him? So I want to take a brief look at how Jesus refers to hell here and in other passages. A little bit later on in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the time. And he says this to them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. And so this is talking to the religious leaders about their hypocrisy. But Jesus is saying here that hell isn't simply a place that you go to. If you do bad things here, one day you'll go to a bad place. He seems to be saying here that hell is becoming a reality right here, right now, on earth. And the choices that we make create that hell. And here he's talking about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and how it's creating that hell. And so w when Jesus uses the word hell, he uses the Greek word, it's Gehenna, which is really just a spelling uh, for the Valley of Hinnom, which is just south and west of Jerusalem. And it would bring up memories in in the minds of the Jewish people. And here's a quick uh, Israeli tour guide that's going to give a little brief history about this, this place, Gehenna. Hey everyone, I'm Itai, and today we spent some time here in this beautiful valley 
with beautiful grass and trees right out of the old city, which is up here. This is Mount Zion, where the tomb of King David and the Room of the Last Supper are. And this beautiful valley has a pretty notorious name. It is called uh, Gay Ben Hinnom, the Valley of Hell. Why is it so? In biblical times, there used to be a pagan ceremony that would take place down here in which, in which a deity called the Molech would be worshipped. And during the ceremony that would take place, they would take a statue of that deity from metal, put it on a fire until it would become burning red hot, and then different offerings, offerings would be made to the statue. And the final best offering would be a baby child that would be put on the burning red hot arms until he would die from the heat. A terrible ceremony and because of that the Jewish prophets that went against that decided to go to call this valley Gay Ben Hinnom, the valley of hell, Gehenom. And from there came the word Gehenom, hell, the valley of hell. There are many stories about still ghosts that are hunting this place during the nights and some people believe that it's empty in such a beautiful day because people are still terrified from the spirits who are wandering around this area. Maybe yes, maybe not. You're welcome to come and try it for yourself. Thank you for watching and have a beautiful day. I love that guy. When Jesus talks about hell and he uses that term Gehenna, these are the memories that flood the minds of the Jewish people. They would have remembered kings Ahaz and Manasseh and how they were evil, and they ended up adopting the practices of the surrounding people, and they would offer children in the fire. The valley was later used as a burning garbage heap, and it was a place where they would just throw all their refuse, burn 24 hours a day, just burning. Their criminals and people that were deemed evil were put on that fire, and the idea uh, in the Jewish people's mind is just like, you get sent back to your evil. You get turned over to your own evil. If you're involved in this, that's what Jesus is talking about, hell. It's something that we create. And he says these character flaws that we have, they're creating a hell inside of us. Pastor Eldon said for years, I was far from God. I made many bad decisions that really created a personal hell for me and the people around me. And when we knowingly engage in this conflict, we end up being turned over our desires and into our desires, and we have to face the consequences. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is serious. We are creating this kind of hell. That's how some addictions start. Now, there's many reasons for addictions. There's a lot of mental health issues and other stuff, but I grew up uh, in an area in, in the 80s when people would do things like cocaine, and they'd say, well, it's just on the weekends. You know, weekends would get longer and longer and longer uh, you would see it consume their life you would see the relationships around them crumble and this small decisions snowball into this personal hell but that's a little bit convicting so let's just move on and we'll uh <laughs> we'll talk about what else jesus says in verse 10 it says see that you do not despise one of these little ones for i tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven so you've, people often say this verse tells us that every child has a guardian angel that's always making sure that we're taken care of. I don't think we can actually get that from this verse. Uh, a guardian angel you would think would be with us all the time. You see here that these angels are in heaven. They're in the presence of God. They're 
advocating for us, sticking up for us in the presence of God. So the question I think you know, we can ask around this one when we, we want to think about what Jesus is saying here is, well, think about this. Who is the person that you like least here at Circle? Don't look at them because they could be looking at you and do not point at them and uh, you know, do the kind of like this thing here. Um, but think about that. Who do you dislike the most? I think what Jesus is saying here is like, this is not a fight you want to pick. You're picking with the wrong person. That person that you have an issue with is fully loved by God, completely loved by God. And they're a child of the king. And that is not a fight you want to pick. Remember, Jesus is saying this is deadly serious. I think of one of the things that I've learned you know, in, in our marriage ministry, talking about marriage, uh, Gary Thomas, in his book Sacred Marriage, one of, the, one of the ideas I took out of that the most is just like, wow, my wife is a child of God. God is my father-in-law. That's scary, right? <laughs> God cares about her a lot more than I do. And, uh, and I care about her a lot. And so that's what he's saying here. Is just like, look, when we have conflict here, this is deadly serious. And you're not having conflict with that person. This is now becoming something that you and God have to deal with. And I like how he answers it. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now here's the good news. This is the third point. That conflict activates the heart of God. Just like we are to take whatever measures that are necessary to rid ourselves of our character flaws, God's going to do whatever it takes to protect those who are hurt, who are broken, who are wandering, who are doubting. Because when we're in conflict, His heart springs into action and the search is on. You see, God cares about you. Life does not always feel like this, but God does care about you. He cares about this community. And he really cares about people who are walking away because of some sort of conflict, either internally or externally. And God does not want that to happen. He will move heaven and earth to care for those that are in his care. And we might be content if a person leaves this gathering because it makes it easier on our life. Well, I'm just glad they're gone. They went to another church. God's not content with that. God does not want his people being separated because of conflict. And listening to this, you know, it might make Jesus sound like a horrible guy. If we talked about, he just told us that it's inevitable that we are going to have conflict. And then he tells us that if you're part of that conflict, that's not good. And if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, please don't think that God only cares about his followers when it says he'll leave the 99 of us find that one one of his little ones one of his children that walks away he doesn't just care about jesus followers if you look at luke chapter 15 he uses the same language he says if there's 99 here and one person doesn't know me i'm going after that one 
doesn't mean he doesn't like the other 99. He doesn't love, but his heart is for those that are walking away or for those that don't know him. So whoever you are, God loves you. He cares for you. He will do anything to be in a relationship with you. So remember again where we're on this road trip that Jesus is on. Remember, he's intentionally heading towards Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die for the bad things that we have done, the sins that we've done against God. And he's going to take on the ultimate consequences for all of our actions. So what do we do with this? Okay, it's been nice. We've read some things that Jesus said, but what do we do with this? I think the first thing we need to do is get honest and ask yourself, am I creating or harboring conflict? And this is something that I found, especially when there is conflict, something that I've trained myself to do um, because I, I think I'm pretty awesome and I don't make mistakes. And so I've often like, okay, Brent, what role have I had to play in this? What have I done? What, what am I doing to create to this conflict? And sometimes it's really hard. Um, there's a couple verses here, Psalm 139 23 and 24, I found this is something I need to pray quite often. It says, search me, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm blind to a lot of my own character flaws. God is not. As I get to know God better, I get to know myself better. And I get to know um, the goodness that he has and how he has changed me to be a better person. And so we need to get honest. When there is conflict, where do I fit in? What have I done? And the second thing is to get help. This is why the church is here. This is why we exist, to help you on this journey towards God, on this journey with God, and on this journey with others in this community. And this is why we have things like the journey. If you have things, if you have been hurt in the past and you want to process that and you want to go through that and you want to break that cycle, sometimes these cycles can go back generations in our family, but we, don't, we can be the one that stops it. But we need people around us. And so consider uh, the journey class if you want to work through some of those past hurts. You can ask at the information center. It'll start running again in September. But the other thing you can do is get a mentor. Maybe you feel like resolving conflict is just impossible to realize. Maybe you think like, oh man, like it happens all the time. And I talk to a lot of people just like, you know what? At work, people are like always like on me. There's conflict there. There's conflict in my home. There's conflict in my church. And I just, I like to be blunt with people. I said, well, we have one constant factor in all those conflicts. And it's you, right? <laughs> and sometimes we need to realize that. And it seems impossible that we can get away from conflict. But we can, but we often think, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look and read through Matthew chapter 18 on, on what the Bible says about how we handle conflict. But just knowing things doesn't always help us. We need to be on this journey together with other people. So get a mentor. We have trained mentors here at the church that will help you figure out what you need and where you can uh, fit in in that. You can talk to the information center there as well. But don't do it alone. And maybe it does seem impossible, but let me tell you what would have seemed impossible to these people listening to Jesus. 
first of all, that he would choose to die for their sins. Who does that? Most of us, if you're like me, and I know I am, and just like, you know what, you got into this mess, you can get out of it. But Jesus didn't do that. He knew that we couldn't um, come to God on our own, that we couldn't be that good that God would accept us. So he knew that he had to pay that price willingly. He knew he would rise from the dead three days later. And he knew that he was going to fill us with his spirit to give us the power to do the things that he asks of us. So when Jesus says, this is deadly serious, get this out of your life, take these character traits and get rid of them, we can't do that. When I first started becoming a follower of Jesus, there's things I could do. I could stop swearing, I could stop smoking, I could do all these things. But the more I started following God and doing those things, I realized the one thing I could not change was my heart. I couldn't change the fact that I hated people. So obviously going back, um, me and Celeste got married. If you want to know the rest of the story, I only had to wait one night. She called me the next morning and said, you know, I was brushing my teeth this morning and I thought, yes, yes I will marry him. And so I'm on the phone confused. I'm like, okay, that's uh, great. I guess we'll figure it out from there. We got married, but it wasn't an easy road to get there. She had divorce in her family, and, and her father was out of her life for a long time, which led to confusion about who she is, and it led to a string of bad relationships for her. I had almost been married before. My fiancé left me six months before our wedding. That led me into a string of bad relationships, alcohol, drug abuse, and I was slowly losing the capacity to live life in a healthy relationship even though that's what I wanted most in life I always wanted to be married have a family remember Celeste once said to me I wish that I had met you earlier I said oh no you don't you know before I was a follower of Christ I was selfish I'm still selfish just less selfish um, impatient I hated people and those are not good qualities for being in a relationship I'm also seven years older than her, so there's a lot of years where our relationship would have been really creepy. And uh, our kids are really traumatized. I remember the day where they figured out, wait a minute, when you graduated, mom was in grade five. <laughs> that really messes with their brains. But here's the good news. The good news is that God can change us. See, I grew up when I was in the church, and because of conflict and stuff that happened in the church, I said, when I'm 18 and I'm on my own, I am out of here. I am never walking into a church again. I want nothing to do with it because all the infighting and the messiness. To be honest, as I look back now, the main reason why I left the church is because I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. I wanted Brent's rules, which were not. I'm not really great at managing my own life. That became evident. What I ended up doing is I ended up creating that own little hell of mine on earth. And why Jesus came, he came to get the hell out of us. He came to get the hell out of the world and create a new kingdom where we could follow him. I was handed over to my own evil desires and I felt like I was stuck. But when I did decide to follow Jesus, slowly, very slowly, but surely, things started to change. There's a, book, a, a verse in the book of Galatians that talks about 
the changes God makes in your life when you follow Jesus and give him control over your life. Galatians 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those are the qualities that we need in our life to be in healthy relationships. And as we let God's Spirit change us individually, we become better people, better couples, better circle groups, a better church. And so that's what God is wanting to do. Remember I talked about He's creating His kingdom by recreating us. So would you let Him change you? One of the sayings I heard early on in my time following Jesus is that God loves us so much, He's not willing to let us stay the same or let us walk away from His family without doing whatever He can to bring you back. So I'm going to ask the band to play a song here. This talks about the love of God. I want you to contemplate how are things going in, in your heart. And we're going to we're going to talk the next couple of weeks, like, how do we handle this conflict? We're going to talk about how do we forgive? But for now, just ask God to search your heart.